This is the Freshman 15. I'm Daniel Long, and I'm here to answer any questions you might have. And I'm Jeremy Bear, and I'll ask the questions around here. Okay, shoot. All right, Daniel. You're in the desert, walking along, when all of a sudden you look down. What desert? What? What desert? doesn't make any difference. This is hypothetical. Well, I grew up in the desert. I don't know why I'd go back there. Maybe you're fed up. You want to be alone. All right. Who knows? All right. You look down, and you see a Blu-ray disc face down in the sand. What's a Blu-ray disc? You know DVDs? Yeah. Same thing. You reach down and flip the disc over, and you grind it into the gravel. You scrape the disc against the sand and rocks, and it occurs to you that if you keep going, pretty soon the disc will be unplayable. But you're not stopping. What do you mean I'm not stopping? I mean you're not stopping. Why is that, Daniel? Uh, um, They're just questions, Daniel. Designed to provoke an emotional response. Oh, okay. Should we continue? What's the movie? What do you mean? On the Blu-ray, what movie is it? Mallrats. Oh, that makes sense then. Yeah, think of it as community service. Yeah. Should we get started? Let's do it. You have insulted me! I have strained my patience in order not to do so. And I demand an apology! This is too ridiculous. Really too ridiculous. A proper general's poodle. Can you fight? I see no reason whatever for us to fight. What reason would you like? Shall I spit in your face? Shall I cut a chunk out of your backside or would that be too ridiculous? How do you get back to your general now? Through the window? Hmm? I believe you're really quite a madman. You draw your sword. Jeremy. Yes. Episode 17. 17, man. Once again, another director that we said we got to do. I felt that way. At oh, least, yeah, we absolutely. We talked about this guy in volume one. Yeah. Should we fit him in? And we were kind of going back and forth. And we knew volume two. He's got to be in here. But it seemed like an appropriate time to discuss this particular director because there's several or at least a couple of different franchises that he's directly responsible for that we're still making movies out of. We're talking about Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott, The brother. Ridley Scott. And, of course, his freshman film. The Duelist. The Duelist. Say I've, that five times fast. I'm going to be honest, Jeremy. I didn't know this was his freshman film. Now, I knew it, but I hadn't seen it. I was under the impression for some reason that Alien, I thought it was actually his freshman film. Oh, really? Yeah, I thought, well, he, he's had a, he has a few other things that he's done before, but not like not films, just like... TV episodes, yeah, a lot of ads. Right. Um, but The Duelist, this is his freshman film, his first film. Yeah, and I mean, and I had heard of it, mainly because I was such an obsessive Alien fan that, you know, I've watched all the DVD extras just over and over ad nauseum. And, and so I, and, and you can see in old interviews, he keeps referring back to the duelist, to the duelist, the duelist. And I think that I just sort of assumed that early Ridley Scott was just all sci-fi. So yeah, I was surprised to find out that this is, that the duelist had nothing to do with sci-fi whatsoever, that it's rather this historical drama period piece. So before we get too far into talking about The Duelist, how about I give us a quick premise of the film? Premise, yes. All right. So it's about two guys in the 1800s in France who have this ongoing duel with one another 
over, I don't even, I, I mean, it seems like, how many years? 15 years or so? Yeah, it covers about 15 years. Yeah, and, and they're constantly wanting to duel um, with swords, with horses, with guns. Mm-hmm. Really, this the film chronicles this ongoing relationship. Right, yeah. Two uh, officers in Napoleon's army. Right. Uh, which, uh, in a time where gentlemen honor is paramount and all that and it's just if, if, if you're not grabbing on to that aspect of it you're just I mean you're going to find the film very confusing and I'll, and I'll admit when I first watched it it took me a while to kind of even get in that mindset of like okay this gentleman this this weird sort of what I would consider almost a warped sense of what what masculinity and honor is that's what pins the whole movie together. And so, I, you know, you got to get in that mode. And this is, so this is one of the questions that, that I've had kind of coming into this in this conversation that I wanted to hear, or at least I wanted us to talk about. Because this movie, it grew on me. Yeah. While I was watching it, it grew on me. And I was hoping that you would tell me why. You know, it's so weird. And probably people think, this is such a douchey thing, but I think people think that we like put our heads together and decide all the things that we agree on before we do these episodes. I swear we really don't. But Daniel, I got to tell you, it was the same way with me. Like, so you wait, so it, it grew on you too. I didn't, I thought very little of, I watched it twice, thought very little of it the first time, not very little. It just wasn't my kind of movie. And then in that second watching, I was like, oh, I'm kind of getting romanced by this a little bit. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's weird. Now I, I'm, I'm still not going to say that I think, this is the Ridley Scott movie to catch or anything like that. But yeah, it kind of gets, it kind of gets under your skin a little bit. It really does. It really does. So here's what my kind of relationship to it while watching it at the beginning of the film, I have this sense of actually being kind of confused to be totally honest by the story. It, it, things are seeming to happen that I, and I'm not sure what the connections are between the things we should say right off. So that the two, two people who are dueling it, French officers are played by Harvey Keitel and Keith Carradine. There's this relationship between these two characters because Keith Carradine's character is told by an officer higher up that he's supposed to go get Harvey Keitel's character because he he killed, was it? Well, he didn't kill, but he he, he grossly wounded the, the nephew of like a, like a mayor or someone Uh, like that. He needed to be brought in for, to be, reprimanded and disciplined. And right. And so Keith Carradine's character, Hubert, right? I think that's his name. Dubert, yeah. Dubert. He, he's a fence. This other, he fends Kaitel's character by wanting to go and, and get him and they start this rela- relationship that revolves around dueling. Right. I didn't buy it for whatever reason. I just didn't connect with it. Was that your experience too? Yeah, it was. Uh, okay. Yeah. I, I, I wasn't, it felt like such a reachy setup, you know, like we have to establish that these guys are going to have this, this long standing feud based on like a slight. That's the, that was the romance of it. And I was like, you know, I, I, it's not grabbing me. You know, I, I, it felt like Kaitel's character was almost too much of an asshole. Right. Carradine's character was almost overly effete and, didn't have any balls. Yeah, I mean, it just it didn't it didn't really it just didn't ring. And I was like, well, I mean, I don't really care who wins this. Honestly, that's like, how I felt. What, right? What does it even matter? Once you can sort of, I mean, in a way, I, I just knowing the course of it sort of helps you through it. And that's why that that second viewing of it was 
actually a lot better and powerful is overstating, but it was, it was, a, it was a much stronger film the second time through. Incredibly beautiful. It was incredible. And in fact, uh, it, from a visual perspective, so clearly inspired by Barry Lyndon. That's a, I couldn't wait to have that reference because it's so true, right? Yeah. Yeah. You can, you can tell in every frame of it that Ridley Scott saw Barry Lyndon and said, I know I can make that right. film. Without a doubt, he did. Mm-hmm. Natural light, um, just these painterly compositions, this, the softness, you know, the contrast, the, the way he uses the sunlight, the candlelight, the, you know, what, what, the way he's painting with light, natural light throughout the whole thing is absolutely astonishing. And in such amazing contrast right. to what Ridley Scott does later, where it's not to say he, he completely forgoes natural light. But when you're getting into, you know, things like Blade Runner mm-hmm. and, 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 and Alien and all these other, where the light is so just meticulously constructed and that almost becomes the Ridley Scott style, it's, it was so interesting to see what he was doing in this film. Yeah, and I think one of the fascinating things, thinking of Alien being his second film, is they couldn't be different. I mean, obviously we have realism, I suppose, in sci-fi, but also in terms of you have these epic landscapes and then this claustrophobic feel. I mean, he, he couldn't be more different in terms of of location, right? right? It kind of undergirds this sense of time and location mm. of where these people are. And you realize, at least for me, oh, I am not a part of this world. Whatever, mm. and not even by time, just in terms of t- like landscape. This is to- totally beyond me. And then when you kind of go to Alien, for I know it's sci-fi, but that actually feels more like my experience of of this of more mechanical and scientific and technological and uh, I can almost relate more to that claustrophobic feeling there than I can right. actually what I find in the duelist and I just thought that was interesting thinking those he goes from that film to alien right yeah which is and it is interesting because you you go from this completely earthy natural thing to this sterile feeling uh, which you know well in Alien's case, an interruption of the sterility of that environment. But the thing that I just, I found so, well, there's there's a lot of different things uh, about Duelist that I thought was, was pretty remarkable. And that's part of what my struggle was. I was like, there's so many aspects of this that I really like. Why am I just not connecting with yes. the movie though? You know, like I, I love the visuals. I love the editing. I mean, the editing, there are some edited moments that I'm not a fan of. Um, Maybe we can talk about that a little later. But for the most part, the editing was so creative. Um, You know, in so many of these these scenes, Ridley Scott decides not to begin the scene with the master. He begins sometimes in like a really, really uh, carefully chosen close-up and then another close-up and then he'll go wide after you get a little bit of a feeling for the intimacy of it so this is one of the questions i had because i think through going through the film it taught me how to watch it and that was one of the things that i i was kind of thrown off by yeah was were these close-ups so what do you what is happening there like why kind of start with a close-up and then show us kind of a, a larger master shot of what's going on you know some of the moments that were most effective for me when that was going on was w- with this with the final duel between the two characters and i know it's kind of strange to you know be this early in the discussion and already be talking about the ending but the ending is so so essential to the yeah, yeah. and it's just i mean it's I, I mean to me it's the prettiest scene oh. in the film it's just gorgeous 
but the way it's shot and the way it's edited and the way it's constructed is so flawless, I guess. I mean, it really is a, it really is just a gorgeous scene. But what's interesting about it is like, you know, as, as we follow our characters moment to moment, wides give us perspective. There, there's this constructed sort of reality in this, in this final scene. We have two characters and I'll just get a little spoilery. They're, they've decided to use pistols as the, as the method of their final, as the weapon of choice for their final duel. They go out of sight of one another and then they have to sort of find each other and hunt each other down and each character has two bullets. And uh, rather than doing something with, with every passage of time, which w- was, would be what most directors do, which is to you know go to another wide and change the music on you or something like that, be like, oh, I guess time passed. He'll go to a close-up. And what that does in that kind of in a situation like that is you're now feeling the disorientation of the characters because you don't have a wide perspective on what's going on. You don't know where the other guy is in the same way that Keith Carradine doesn't know where Harvey Keitel is. And this final scene, it doesn't have anything to do with the actual duel itself. That's incidental. It's the internal life of these two characters that's really on display. And in every other scene, I feel like that's what Ridley Scott is wanting to remind us of. It's just like, don't don't think that this is a story about a story. This is a story about the internal life of these characters. And so when we cut to a new scene and we start with a close-up rather than a wide, it's like Ridley's like, you know, I'm going to tell you where we are in a minute. I want you to know what everyone's thinking and everyone's feeling before you even know any of that. Because that's what he wants to put up front. They've called Ridley Scott an actor's director, and I completely agree with that. And I think in a way, some of that started with duelists because he wants performance and he wants psychology to be what he begins with, which is so interesting for a guy who who banks so much on uh, just these big and, sweeping yeah. visuals everywhere. I think your explanation of that kind of confirms one of the theories I had, at least about the end, that Keith Carradine, he's grasping onto life and to living, right? I mean, he's he's married, he's about to have a child. Um, but even at the end, a lot of the close-ups have to do with how he's engaging nature right. and what he notices, like water dripping, leaves hanging from trees. Mm-hmm. His surroundings are something that he's being attentive to, whereas Harvey Keitel's character, that's just not the case, right? I mean, he's he's constantly searching. Right. He's trying to find this person that he wants to kill. Like, he, he wants to end life. I could see that at the end, what what was happening, just confirming the rest, or at least the, the first three quarters of the film, where you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I, I felt this about these characters, but this is... This is showing me in visuals how to think about them and right. who they are. That's a really so I'm I yeah I appreciate that explanation of of what he's doing there because I think it's true. I don't know what you would call it the the salon slash brothel or you know whatever it is you know we begin the scene uh, a, a, a close up of a man who's singing to us rather than you know, the scene of, of, of loose women cavorting around mm-hmm. or for example, the fortune teller scene or something like oh, that, right. you know, we're close on the cards and we're close on the face of the fortune teller. And, and we, we, we're, we're much more focused on those sorts of things rather than, you know, Ridley showing off 
how much how meticulously he he put together you know such a such a cool set with all the special details and stuff that's all there and if you want to pick through all that then you're going to be rewarded but ridley scott is the entire time over your shoulder saying don't get too wrapped up in that though let me do that work let me worry about that you worry about getting into the mind and getting into the mood and getting into the psychology of all these different relationships. I, th- I think that was one of the things that was hard for me at first. I wasn't trusting Ridley Scott with tone, mostly because I think he's such a master of it in later films yeah. that initially I wasn't sure how I was supposed to be engaging this film. At some parts I'm like, is this a comedy? It seems funny, played kind of lightly, and that was part of my experience of growing with the film is that by the end, the tone seemed really clear. But I think in the rest of his films that follow this one, tone is right up front. Yet you, as a viewer, enter into the story and, and you know right away, kind of not necessarily what you're in for story-wise, but you are experiencing the film yeah. in a way that he will play upon throughout the whole time you're watching it. Right. Alien is so masterful in that way. Right. Like immediately he sets this tone that you are kind of connected into, manipulated right. throughout the entire film of, of suspense and terror. And yeah, it's just amazing. Sure. Yeah. And and tonally, Gladiator is incredible. Oh, of course. I amazing. Mean, just, just from a complete tonal perspective, to be able to do something that huge, and but yet that tonally consistent, a handful maybe of directors are able to pull off that level of of subtlety and power with a production crew of thousands and a cast of thousands and, you know, all that. Like, how is that even done? I mean, that's, you know, Ridley Scott has mentioned among his great influences uh, is uh, David Lean, uh, Lawrence of Arabia. You can see it, like, you know, just, and and it's exactly the same with, like you know, you would see with, like, a Lean film, which is this enormous sweeping power but yet these small flourishes that make it a piece of art that you know you can't you just can't deny and ridley never wants us to back too far out because if we do he says you know what's the point i've lost you you can't back too far and in fact i think there was a quote i read from somewhere in the last couple of days even as i was doing my ridley scott research which which he was saying you know people don't really care about big battles they're there, but if you're not involved with the guy that's out there fighting the battle, the guy, the singular guy, if you're not invested in him, a battle is just, you know, it may just, it may as well be a video game. It could be anything. It could be anything that you want to, you want to willfully remove yourself from. It's the relationships and it's the psychology and it's the, it's the personalness of it. It's not in the big sweeping gesture. For someone like Ridley Scott to say something like that, I mean, that's, I mean, you know, he must know what he's talking about. Absolutely. And and the connection now with Lawrence of Arabia, I can't unsee that. Gladiator, right? Kingdom of Heaven, sweeping images only to serve the purpose of the central protagonist. Right, exactly. I mean, you know, Prometheus. Oh, yeah, Just these enormous images and even in the latest uh, Alien Covenant, which... The, you see the life and death of a civilization in that in that film, which you know whatever you might think of Prometheus and Alien Covenant. I mean, these are enormous movies with a very human 
core to them. Mm-hmm. Black Hawk Down is one of the, a great example yeah. of how he does that. The tapestry there is war, these images of destruction, certainly this cast of characters, but even in that large cast of characters and, and all these these different things going on, you still have that that connection with a, a, a central character or at least central characters. So Ridley Scott, he loves found moments. And there's a couple of moments in The Duelist where you can see that early Ridley Scott, care, he still had the fever and the flavor that he took on into Alien and into other films where he likes these sort of spontaneous, improvised actors that are having to improvise their way around a problem. You can see um, in the, like, for example, in the proposal scene. Oh, right. Where you see uh, Dubert uh, proposing to the woman who's eventually going to be his wife. And you can see that the horses aren't behaving the, the way horses, they're supposed to. The right. horses are just being dipshits. And they're, you know, they're... they're Getting all up in his head and... Yeah, yeah, and all that kind of stuff. And by the way, if you, like, read notes on that, which I don't know if you read notes no, on that I didn't. scene. Apparently, part of the reason that the actors were laughing through is because one of the horses had this massive erection that they kept trying to, like, not pay attention really? to. Really? Yeah. So the whole... Way to go, Keith Carradine. <laughs> So the whole thing, the whole thing was like just this comedy of errors that they're trying to improvise their way through. Ridley Scott saw that and he's like, that's maybe the best marriage proposal I could imagine. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. I love you. Adele. My dearest Adele. It would make me very happy. Happy beyond all expectation if you would do me the honor to become my wife. Yes. You're not going to get a more genuine moment of, you know, getting them getting bonked in the face and trying to ignore, you know, a, a, a horse phallus. Well, of course they're going to laugh and of course they're going to try and, you know, and of course it's just going to be a really, really human moment. What comes across, though, is two people that have a genuineness about them and a genuine love for each other. Uh, you know, however you get there, that's up to Ridley Scott, of course. But but he loves that. He loves getting in there. Uh, the other scene that I'm thinking of is is one of the early duels between Dubert and Keitel. And I, for the life of me, don't know if this was planned or not. Dubert sneezes. Oh yeah, I know. <laughs> and I, I I I watched. I rewound that scene and I watched it. It couldn't have been less and than several times. And he turns Yeah, he turns away, and then you see like Harvey Keitel kind of just like waiting like okay all right we're gonna wait for this to be done and for the life of me i can't tell if that's pharaoh or if that's harvey Keitel frustrated at that sneeze that the duel isn't starting i'm like is that an actor moment or is that just something that ridley scott decided to leave into the film i, I honestly can't tell i can't tell if even later on in the bath when that happens again yeah because he brings it back around and i'm like well so was it planned then so but I, I don't know because even then it's like how do you I mean, I don't know how you make yourself sneeze, but that was <laughs> such an awkward moment in the bath yeah. that it didn't seem like it was planned, at least in that way, right? What's the matter? I'm going to sneeze. Oh, no, you mustn't. You don't have to. Come on, think of something else. Describe honor. Honor? Honor is... Go on, you must! Indescribable. Unchallengeable. You know, in my in my wildest uh, 
dreams of praising Ridley Scott's directorial ability. These are improvised moments that he just left in. Maybe he completely scripted them, but I just, I don't know. They seem too genuine to, yeah. be, to be scripted moments. So what else do we see uh, in Ridley Scott films that maybe we, we were able to see as far back as The Duelists? A lot of Ridley Scott films focus on men. Yeah. And men in some sort of, of struggle... I don't. I don't want to say competition necessarily, but you. I mean, I. If I even the examples that we've brought up, right? We have the Duelist. We have. We do have Gladiator. We have Kingdom of Heaven. We have Black Hawk Down. American Gangster. You do have like what feels like two central characters kind of in competition with one another. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's something I notice in his films. Yeah. Man against man. Oh, of course, Blade Runner. What I'm forgetting that one too. Yeah. And by the way, I mean, you know, let it not be unsaid, because I rewatched Blade Runner recently in preparation for the new Blade Runner, which, by the way, you, you can't miss. It's a must-see. Well, it's amazing. But I rewatched the original, and uh, Rick Deckard, he's a dick. Yeah. He's a misogynistic asshole, honestly. I mean, he really, really is. If, if you really, really drill down into it, I don't know that that was intentional, but yeah, I mean, you, you have Rick Deckard, this this man's man who's just, you know, whatever it is, whether he's dealing with this replicant that he's supposedly in love with and he's, you know, asserting his maleness right. all over. And you just, you know, in, in 2017, you, you know, it's a little cringy. I can't rely on Say kiss me. Kiss me. And then on the flip side... He's created in some of his movies some of the most amazing feminist icons. Yeah. You know, I mean, we've already talked in our David Fincher episode about mm-hmm. how Ellen Ripley is, and I still an believe icon. her be, yeah, one of, you know, a, a terrific, in my opinion, example of the power of feminism. Mm-hmm. G.I. Jane. Oh, yeah, of course. You know, I'm not going to say that it's his best film or anything like that, but in terms of what the movie's saying and what the movie's doing, uh, you know, my wife still goes on about the inspiration she took from G.I. Jane. You know, whatever. Yeah, it's a flawed film. But I, 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 it's so interesting when you just, when you look across the whole body of work of Ridley Scott, he's just, he's clearly a guy that's up for anything. He's up for trying anything, including different philosophies right. that might even be at odds with the, with the movie before it. Certainly he has the big war genre epic. He has the sci-fi then he has these smaller, quieter films like Matchstick Men, yeah, um, and The Counselor, right. you know, and that are kind of at least a different feel from those other ones. And then there's the movies that kind of blur the line, like Body of Lies, like you know, it's it's a oh yeah, it's a personal story, but yet it is also kind of a war story, yeah. and you know, it's 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 everything in between. But yeah, it is really, really interesting. He's he's the most, and and I got to tell you, I mean, Ridley Scott, he's what I I, I want to see. He's I think he's 80. No. He's about to turn 80. That's amazing. The, the thing that, that astonishes me so much, and I know we, uh, this, uh, I made a similar comment about Danny Boyle, is I'll tell you what, man, I think, he's, I think he's still making his best stuff right now. Oh, yeah, I think you're right. At 80 years old, just grinding away at some of the best art, some of the best material, some of the most, I mean, he's never satisfied this guy right. he's never like yeah you know what that's that that's fine that's good enough he won't do it if he if he feels like he's repeating himself in any way it's just it's it's physically painful he can't do it he won't do it and here's a guy 
storyboards all his all of his own films. He does. He does them himself. Daniel, I'll tell you what, man. Ridley Scott is a guy. If you've actually seen the storyboards that he draws for these films, you look at them and you go, "Here's a guy who could have done whatever he wanted. He could have been a he could have been a world class successful illustrator. Oh my gosh! He could have been a, 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 a you know a sci fi writer. He could have been he could have been this. He could have been that. He chose directing, even though he could have done anything. I mean, these storyboards that he draws, these concept art pieces that he draws. Um, you know, sometimes in collaboration with Giger for some of the alien films and all that. Incredible. Incredible. Uh, he started, I don't know if you knew this, but, you know, he worked in advertising for many years. And that's what he did. He would do these marker comps and whatnot. Wow. Just, it's so humbling to look at someone like Ridley Scott and see what he's capable of when you put a pen or a marker in his hand or a camera on his shoulder. You know, whatever tool you can imagine and he's a virtuoso at everything. I mean, it's just that he, he's 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 a really unique guy. And I, I I don't know how to overstate that. I mean, honestly, I don't know how else to put it. He's my dude. I mean, Ridley Scott right. is this guy that I I have always and will always admire because he he's an artist's artist. And I think that's one of the things that you can totally tell in the films that he makes is he's an innovator, and he's also one of one of those types of filmmakers creatives who's just not afraid to to fail. Right. You have to fail to make great things. That's right. And he's done it and he's and failed, he has, right? He he's made great things and he's made things that I don't like. Right. Uh, and I don't connect with. I think those things were necessary f- to the greater films that he's made that I absolutely connect with. Yeah. He just goes for it. I mean, here's the thing. He's a guy who says, you know what? I can make a film like G.I. Jane about this woman who can do honestly what men are doing and that's okay. I can make a film about Rome and gladiators in Rome. I can make a film about some crazy Nicolas Cage type character who... OCD. Yeah, who has OCD. I mean, like just even naming those three films that yeah. they're made by the same guy, that's yeah. pretty remarkable. But I, I'm glad you brought this up, that, that he's not afraid to fail because it is important to note that, yeah, he's failed. Right. And... He's not, uh, to me, I don't look at him the same way I look at like the Coens, for example, where I can't name a bad Coen Brothers movie, or at the very least, I can't say, that one I didn't really like, I like every movie, and they hit it out of the park every time, and it's almost it's almost frustrating how good they are, <laughs> like how are human beings capable of doing that? Ridley Scott, you can't say that about. No. Now, I would say that his hits outweigh his misses by a mile, and that's... That's part of why he's Ridley Scott. Well, let's talk about that, though. What is it that Ridley Scott does? I mean, I guess what the way the trajectory of this conversation usually goes is what does he do in The Duelist that maybe he wouldn't do later? But I'm also equally interested in what does he do in The Duelist that maybe he continued to do that maybe he shouldn't have continued to do? One thing that I found in this film, in The Duelist, that made me reconsider his other films and ask the question if he's... It's kind of still done it. He's incredible at the psychology of individual characters and maybe individual characters at odds with one another. But in terms of showing characters in intimate relationships, a marriage or even dating or something like that, I'm not sure that actually he explores that a lot in his films. Like he he leaves us at a little bit of like arm's length. Yeah, I mean, even thinking of the duelist, Dubert's character has two different women with whom he's intimate in the film. And I actually don't know anything about either of them. I know a lot about him and very little 
about the people he's supposed to be in love with. Yeah. If I think about the rest of his films, that's sort of true. At least I'm not going to say in every film because I, I don't think I could say that as definitively, but it's hard for me to say that that's something that actually sticks out. Yeah. Definitely a tone and a feel and a psychology guy, but maybe that's part of it. Maybe he's not so much a relationships guy, um, especially if it's some sort of like familial relationship. Um, you know, I can name a few different spots in a few different films that he has where he kind of falters there. So I, I did note this as a criticism, and but I even I, I say that knowing that I think you've kind of helped me reconsider it, but I still want to name it because I still think it's something that confused me as a viewer, and that was what felt like sometimes this confusion of editing, of close up to action and. Uh, this what felt like sometimes erratic camera work and I wasn't necessarily sure what to do with it or like I felt like he had some moments of duels where it was clearly felt like handheld and kind of choppy camera other times where it felt really sweeping and kind of slower and beautiful and it seems like you'd want that to be intentional and why you're doing that and I couldn't necessarily it made me question why like what am I supposed to be getting from this duel that's as different from that duel right. I wasn't sure if that was actually clear or if it was just kind of oh this is interesting why don't we try it this way some of the moments particularly in the duel some of the, the most intense moments I was taken out of it by the editing a little bit specifically some of the callback editing Right, the yelling and the... The echoes and, you know, those kinds of things. I just, to me, it felt a little unnecessary. (laughs) Now, some of that was partly of its time. I think that's an example of stuff that he probably wouldn't do anymore. Um, I think his films are masterfully edited. Mm-hmm. In fact, um, I think I might have mentioned the first time I even saw Alien in college when I took a film course. And in fact, the Alien was actually used as an example of editing. Yeah. I don't know that you're going to find too many films that are more masterfully edited. I than agree. Alien. I mean, just to the frame, it's just, it's exactly what it needs to be. He wasn't quite there with the duelists, but... The editing was still creative, and I would say for 90% of it, 95% of it maybe, uh, I was actually very impressed with the editing of The Duelist, but, but, but he does pick those moments that they actually interrupt the psychology of what he's trying to accomplish rather than support it. 1977, was that it? 1977? Yeah. Yeah, the rules were a little different back then. Um, and I, I, you know, there's a couple of criticisms even with uh, Blade Runner. You know, I, I think it's a great film. I, I, Blade Runner is just, it's one of the all-time classics. It's not a flawless film, though. There are things in the film that probably could have been smoothed out a little bit and from a storytelling point of view. To me, music is part of that, too, with The Duelist. Right. I, I just, I, I think The Duelist soundtrack would be a great record to put on in the background like you know at a dinner party or something as a soundtrack though it's as a score there's there's a lot of really heavy-handed moments kind of so bash many. you over the head moments oh yeah that I, I don't know that we needed i don't think this is true of alien but pacing wise mm. 
I think that, and it happened in The Duelist, and I, and I can think of other examples. He tells like this be, the beginning part of a story really quickly to get to the part of what he actually really wants to tell and kind of take his time with. Yeah. And I felt that with The Duelist, where, it's, okay, he's kind of getting to this moment of where they, are, they need to duel the first time, and then, okay, this is the story. And I actually think that the pacing of the film gets better as it goes. Okay, now that that's out of the way. I can actually share with you the movie I wanted to share. There's a topic that I wanted to get into a little bit, and it's something that we haven't talked very much about over the course of all the episodes that we've done. But I think this is the perfect episode to get into it because I think this is, I think it's an area where Ridley Scott has triumphed greatly and also, quite frankly, failed greatly. Ooh. And that's casting. Um, Yes. In my opinion, the duelist's biggest downfall is I think it was miscast. There's a difference in saying you cast bad actors and saying you ca- you cast the wrong actors. Right. I think the duelists cast good actors, but they were the wrong actors. Would you say for both roles? Both roles. I agree. In my opinion, yeah. I, Keith Carradine is fine, fine actor. Uh, Harvey Keitel, great actor. Neither of them belong in this movie, though. I, I, I'm not going to say it's a bad movie either or, or that the movie, you know, it ruins the movie or anything. But, well, first of all, let's just get the obvious out of the way. These lines weren't written for American accents. Keith Carradine, definitely. Harvey Keitel, no way in hell is, is are, are these lines meant to come out of a guy who was clearly born and raised in New York. I mean, oh, no, all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, we're watching Mean Streets. Yeah. And <laughs> mean Streets in, in France with swords. This is incredible. And it was, you know, if, if you read a little bit about how it worked, um, I mean, uh, both of these guys, Keitel and Carradine, they were, a guy, they were guys that, you know, in the mid-late 70s, they had some heat. And the studios wanted to fund a movie where they knew they could have a couple of bankable stars. They looked at these two guys as pretty bankable. And so Ridley said, yeah, okay, yeah. I mean, if if this means I get to make the movie that I want to make, then yeah, I'll take those two guys. Now, that's me assuming. I don't know for sure. But part of the reason I bring that up is because this wasn't the last time this happened with Ridley Scott. No, and I think for in this movie in particular, I mean, what you have is Keith Carradine... His performance feels so stiff. Harvey Keitel couldn't give a shit <laughs> about what he's supposed to do, yeah, and just plays himself. And so the two of them next to each other, yeah, you, it's so, yeah. it's so the opposite. He, Harvey Keitel is going to be Harvey Keitel, and hey, man, awesome, awesome, right? Great, you know, if you want a Harvey Keitel in your movie, there's no better guy than Harvey Keitel, yeah. and that's that's fantastic. But man, I I mean, here, the problem is you have basically everyone um, with either uh, Irish or English accents representing French people all throughout, except for these two clearly American dudes. Right. It, it was such a obvious studio casting situation that was much more forgivable in the 70s. And, mm-hmm. and we need to just name that, that that was... Oh, it was... To- yeah, you could get away with that. You could get away with that. This day and age, that's a lot harder to get away with. But they didn't really even try and tailor the lines very much to it. You just, you have these sorts of things coming out of these guys' mouths that, 
you're like, I, I, I'm sorry, that accent with that line is just not going to work. Mm-hmm. Now, had they chose a couple of, chosen a couple of English actors, yeah, I, I can see it, honestly. Not that that makes them any closer to French than, you know, yeah. the New York City, but but at least it would have been consistent with the rest of the accents in the movie. And and that's, it just completely fell down in that area for me. It wasn't just an accent issue, but that's the most obvious side of it. So I'm curious. So yeah, what other misfires have there been casting wise in this films? So for me, the most egregious of all of, <laughs> of all the miscasts in, uh, in all of uh, Ridley Scott's movies has to be, Christopher Columbus, played by Gerard Depardieu in 1492. Of course. Which, by the way, is a very impressive film in a lot of ways. It's a long film. But you have... (laughs) Let me see if I can get it right here. You have... A French guy... It's my best. With a French accent speaking English um, in order to portray an Italian in Spain. So it's it's such this it, it's such a mishmash of all these different things, and Gerard Depardieu, uh, for all the fine acting he's able to do, he cannot hide his no. French accent. He's completely uh, unable to do it. And it, it, it to me, I almost had to laugh because I was like, "Can't you put that guy in the Duelists, right? And put you know the other guy somewhere in in fourteen ninety two? I mean, or Harvey Keitel would have played a better Chris Columbus, right?" <laughs> But it's it's such an obvious misfire, and and you can tell. And of course, you know, if you look back at the reviews, everyone's like, "Ridley, what in the world were you thinking?" We are building the first city of the new world. I brought the plans of a Florentine architect, Leonardo da Vinci. God willing, we will establish his ideal city. And I think the thought was, he's a great actor the movie will just conform to how great an actor he is, or he's a great enough actor to just conform to the movie around him. And that never quite happened. And I think the same is happening here with the duelist, but you know what? It actually, it actually leads into, I I think what's seen as other egregious casting, which is, is probably the most famous and the most recent, which is when Ridley Scott decided to make Christian Bale Moses. Right. Joel Edgerton. Pharaoh. That's right, exactly. I, I mean, yeah, of course. And the world essentially said, no, you don't get to do that anymore. That's just that's just not how that works. The slaves, I know what you expect. They're Egyptians. They should be treated as Egyptians. They should have the same rights. They should be paid for their work. Or you must set them free. They're not Egyptians. They are slaves, Moses. What else do you expect? They wouldn't know what to do if all of a sudden they were left to fend for themselves like animals. It kind of brings up the whole issue that, quite frankly, I was actually excited to talk with you during this episode about Daniel, because this is something that I'm interested in your opinion. I'm interested in in the audience's opinion. So please, if you've got thoughts on this, I I really want to hear them. It's this whole idea of whitewashing. Right. Finding, you know, whatever their ethnicity, usually a white guy or a white lady let's cast the bankable star and not worry about ethnicity because we we need the dollars to make this movie. Ridley Scott's completely upfront about the fact that he cast Christian Bale in his Exodus movie for that reason. Mm -hmm. I don't know. What do you think about that? I do think it's problematic. And I think that's a really good example of why is you actually lose something in the telling of the story 
by making a decision that the characters are going to be, in particular, right, these white male characters. It almost seems like the assumption is that the story is only only makes sense if we can relate to the characters, not in their humanity per se, but in their race or in the way that they look. And I think that kind of decision-making actually distances people because it suggests, oh, I can only relate to this person um, because I know them, mm. I've experienced them in other films, they look more like me. I think that's really problematic because the whole idea, and what the power of filmmaking, right, and I think the power of, of, of storytelling, I actually gain more of my humanity by entering into somebody else's humanness in who they are, and that means that they are other and they are different from me, and that I need to see actually the world through their otherness, not in the sense of, oh, I need to kind of erase the how they're different or, or how I'm different from somebody. But that's actually not empathy. Empathy is, is um, and what I think storytelling is so good at doing is helping us to be more empathetic people, is by entering into their world, who they are, and recognizing how I'm different and the things that I kind of need to let go of or give up on um, so that I can actually make that jump. Uh, I think that's really the power in filmmaking. And so when you whitewash and make the assumption that I will only relate to somebody who's like me, as a viewer, as a human being, I'm actually missing out on an opportunity of something that could be profound. Yeah, totally agree. But to quote Ridley Scott, when he was asked about this very issue with Christian Bale, he says... I can't mount a film of this budget where I have to rely on tax rebates in Spain and say that my lead actor is Mohammed so-and-so from such-and-such. I'm just not going to get it financed. So the question doesn't even come up. So, I and and by the way, I agree with everything. So you set me up. No, I agree with every single thing you say. And here's the thing that I, here's my own struggle with it. At the end of the day, would I rather have a Moses movie by Ridley Scott or no Moses movie by Ridley Scott. This is where it becomes hard because Does it though? I, I don't know. Well I but, really don't know. I honestly don't know because here's the thing, man. I did you see the movie? Yeah. Did you like it? Uh, yeah. Right. It was okay, right? Yeah. I mean it had some scenes, it had some it had some set pieces, good lord. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, for incredible. sure. At the end of the day, I have to say, I actually did like the movie. You did? I liked it, yeah. I didn't love it. I liked it. In the end, I was glad I saw it. Would I have rather had that movie or no movie? I got to tell you, man, I think I would rather have that movie than no movie. And that's hard to say because the fact of the matter is, Ridley Scott says, if you're going to make this movie, there's certain things that you you can't not have in the movie. And the certain things that you can't not have in the movie, unfortunately, cost over $100 million. And so as good a points as you're making, and I agree with every single one of them, there's these these budgetary realities. Having Christian Bale or someone along the lines of Christian Bale in that role is the only way we're going to get that made. Now, this is the moment where our whole audience says Daniel's awesome and Jeremy's a dick. No, I mean I get I get what you're saying. Though I f- I agree with our audience. Um, no, <laughs> the thing about I, I interrupted you though. Sorry, go no, ahead. It's okay. It's all right. Uh, I I, do, I don't know what to do with that because 
even in 2017. I like that one of the big movies of the year was The Big Sick. I mean, that's fantastic, right, honestly. Right. And that's only one example. You know, the white guy dominance of Hollywood is maybe not as set in stone as it was this time even 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I think that's freaking great. We are the we are kidding ourselves, though, to pretend that it's just not there. And we can get the same kind of movies and the same kind of budgets and the same kind of fi- financing for the same spectacle sort of movies with actors that might not be as quote unquote bankable or something like that. So and that's and that's where the struggle is. And it's like the, the snake eating its own tail. I don't know where the answer is because it's hard for me because, you know, at the end of the day, I saw previews for Exodus, God, Gods and Kings. I thought, ah, oh, shit, I want to see that movie. <laughs> you know, that's, but I'm not supposed to want to. I'm not supposed to want to, but I want to see that movie. What do I do? And it's Ridley Scott. And I love Ridley Scott. And quite frankly, Christian Bale's a good actor. And I know that's not really cool, but it's just, you know, and I just, I'm very interested in the Moses story. It's a great story. I right. Know, what do I do with that? So I go round and round and dude, I don't know where I land. Yeah, but I feel like for some reason, and I don't know why, and maybe it's because of my history with the story, that story is problematic in so many ways, given that it's told in the, it be, as a result of that. I mean... Yeah. Um, Can you make a low-budget Moses movie? It depends on what part of the Moses story you're trying to tell. Yeah. It's possible. If the Exodus story, which I know it does, rests on the fact that this, the Red Sea parted, mm-hmm. you know, which there's debate historically on what that meant and how big the Red Sea was... Maybe it was more like a low-budget film than it was, uh, an epic masterpiece. Who knows? But anyway, well, so here's the reason why I would be thankful for Exodus, Gods and Kings, is because if someone said, fuck that movie, I'm going to make a better one that's going to be more honest. And if that's only possible because of the movie that Ridley Scott made, then great, mm. right? Okay, I get that. And I feel like that's true. I mean, I feel like there are a lot of different films that are coming out in reaction to films that have been made in a way that, that that a whole new generation of filmmakers is like, you know what, that was good then, but we need different ones now for us and for stories that represent maybe a, a wider audience. Yeah. I don't know. I guess I wonder with that, the, the statement of would I rather not have an Exodus movie at all? And, and I, it's hard. I don't know. If that's the one I got, maybe I would. But I don't know. Yeah. But you're questioning whether or not that's that's even a legit question. Yeah, I guess I am. Yeah. That's fair. I obviously this all comes back to casting questions and yes. all that. And and I I think it's something that Ridley Scott is sometimes guilty of from time to time, which is casting for cash. And you do it, mm-hmm. directors have to do it to a degree. I think Ridley Scott is probably more upfront about the fact that he does. Was Matt Damon the perfect actor for The Martian? Maybe right. he did a great job. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm I I loved I loved The Martian. Mm-hmm. I really did. Matt Damon let Ridley Scott spend whatever he needed to spend to get The Martian made. Right, though. and and that's that that has to be. That has to be said. You know, was there a no-name who could have done a better job at The Martian than than Matt Damon? It's possible. But, you know, realities are what there are. And if there's anyone who knows how to play the game, it's Ridley Scott at this point. Right. And he's not going to apologize for it. And 
it's funny. You respect it, and you also lament it in a way. Yeah. You know, that you play, that he plays the game that he plays. And I think I can see the casting choices kind of biting him in the ass with, in the counselor with, right. I mean, Cameron Diaz and I, I even think Javier Bardem. I, I both, I mean, Javier Bardem in particular, incredible actor. I'm not sure that the character though he played was, I mean, the film is problematic in a lot of ways, but casting for sure is one of the ways in which it's really problematic. There again, though, you're talking about a lot of actors. The year it was made, they all had a lot of heat. Oh, my goodness. Some of Michael Fassbender, Penelope Cruz, Cameron Diaz, Javier Bardem. Oh, yeah, everyone. Yeah. So, what are your favorite Ridley Scott movie or movies? I mean, Alien is up. I think it's actually number one. And I recently rewatched it when we did our David Fincher episode, yeah. and it's just solidified that in terms of of its tone and pacing and the way that film is crafted. Check that out, Lambert. You may be getting interference. Dallas, are you sure there is no sign of it? I mean, it is there. Dallas. Am I, am I Claire Lambert? I want to get the hell out of here. Oh, God. It's moving right towards you. No, Dallas. Let it out and let it go. Dallas? Dallas? It feels so perfect to me in so many ways. I have a really special love for Matchstick Men. Yeah. I actually really like that film. It's very clever. And I love the color yeah. of that movie. And I even love the style. Honestly, dude, you had me at Sam Rockwell. I oh, mean, of Sam course. Sam Rockwell's in it, I mean. Yeah, for sure. Then there are a few, few films that hit me at a certain time, that's, which makes them some of, I mean, I will just always have nostalgia for them. I mean, yeah. Gladiator is one of those. Sure. Black Hawk Down is one of those. I love those. Kingdom of Heaven, couldn't get into. Yeah. Um, Robin Hood, couldn't get into. Black Rain. <laughs> So here's the thing. I was going to come to that. You were really. So here's the thing about Black Rain. Go ahead. It's a film my dad introduced me to. Mm-hmm. My dad loved that movie. No kidding. And I saw a lot of movies I probably shouldn't have, at, yeah. you know, when I was younger, that being one of them. Yeah. And I've watched it, to, like, you know, a few times since. Have you really? So, uh, so okay, so l- let's have it. Does, does Black Rain hold up? Well, I don't know. This is a question for our our, our friends. friends hold the holdup, yeah. yeah. It's a great question. There's a part of it, the, like the plot, and it's, I don't know, there's, there's, there's something about it, and I think it, I mean, I think it has to do with the fact of when I watched it yeah, and yeah. watching it with my dad that makes me appreciate it in some ways. You've dishonored me and our department. I saw you take the money. You know what it's like trying to get something done around here? I've informed Ohashi of your crime. He's spoken to a captain in New York. You know the kind of man you are. You don't know one thing about me, all right? Hey, listen. It's you and your self-righteous bullshit, man. It's gonna cost me my goddamn job. Hey, hey, I'm talking to you. A cop on the edge. (laughs) (laughs) Taking down the, what is it, the the Yakuza? Yakuza, yeah, Yeah. of course. I mean, that film hasn't been made again. No, he's the only one to ever make that film. That's he—he he, he broke the mold with that. Oh man! No, but that's good. That's in. Uh, what about you? Um. Okay, so I'll tell you what. Much like you, I you know I love uh, Black Hawk Down, uh, Gladiator, huge, huge impact. 
honestly, I think The Martian is one of the better movies um, mm. that Ridley Scott's ever made. Thelma and Louise. I oh, I always forget about that. That's a Thelma great film. Thelma and Louise, Of man. course. Go watch Thelma and Louise. I, male or female, whoever you are, fantastic character movie, bananas, balls out movie that you want to talk about Ridley Scott taking a chance. I mean, what a payoff, though. What a great, strange film. And again, I mean, to your point about empowering women, mm. I mean, that is one of those films that... I think had some backlash because of who are these women doing these crazy things in this movie. You women, crazy. You got that right. I mean, really. That business with your tongue. I mean, does that mean pull over? I want to show you what a big fat slob I am. Yeah, or does that mean suck my dick? We think you should apologize. I ain't apologizing for shit. I bet you even called us beavers on your CB radio, didn't you? Sure did. I hate that. I hate being called a beaver, don't you? You gonna apologize or what? I don't think he's going to apologize. Nah, I don't think so. So, my first place choice was all, was kind of a tie. Um, in the end, I think it has to go to Alien. I, I just, I can't like a Ridley Scott movie more than Alien. I just, it's just, it's too beloved in my life. I'm an Alien fan for life. But the only thing that, that even comes close has to be for me american gangster oh it's a great film that movie is such perfection in so many ways and this is something that i think we, you can't talk about ridley scott without mentioning if you watch american gangster don't even bother with anything except the director's cut mm. it's a better experience in a lot of different ways most obviously it's a better ending it's a longer ending actually uh, in fact the the, the non-director's cut ends it slightly too early you need that ending. You need to find out what happens to these two guys, specifically what happens to Frank Lucas mm. after he gets out of prison. In fact, in some ways, it's my favorite scene in the movie yeah. is is his post-prison scene. And it's not even in the theatrical release. And it just you, you have to have it. You have to see it. One of the great movies of the decade that it came out. I just, I, I can't say enough good things about American Gangster. Go see it. And it's use of, of music. Music. I mean, fantastic. impeccable. It's so good. Yeah. Everything about American Gangster, I, it, like I said, it's just, it's the only thing to rival uh, Alien in, in Ridley Scott's uh, body of work. But so, um, The Duelists, what do we have to say about where The Duelists fits into the whole Ridley Scott scheme of things? I'm going to say the bottom quarter of his films. You know, we've had this question of, is it for completists only or whatever? I, I mean, I think it's actually worth seeing. There's there's too much beauty in it, I think, to kind of disregard it. I think there's amazing cinematography that makes it worth watching. Mm -hmm. The time period is so fascinating. I don't know. The, and the questions of honor, we, we didn't even get into this a lot, but questions of honor and being a gentleman and, and what right. that means. That's just such a fascinating thing that's so beyond my experience. I certainly don't think it's in the the top three quarters of of the films that i consider of ridley scott like must see films yeah yeah so i mean we yeah where would you place it yeah i would say i would say the same i don't know that um while i there was a lot about the movie that i appreciated there was enough about it that held me back i feel like it's maybe not the bottom but it's among the bottom honestly the the completest question is a hard one for me with the duelists because I'm trying to think of a of a context that I would recommend it that isn't like a oh you need to really check out all the films of Ridley Scott you know that's true or of French dueling films French dueling <laughs> films 
Um, you know what, though? The only thing that holds me back from saying that is that in a weird sort of way, it kind of has a little bit to say about our current cultural moment. And that's something I didn't expect. I wouldn't have said that a few years ago. I'd have been like, yeah, you know, that was a movie for another time back when those kinds of movies were more popular. And even then it was probably a little bit of a throwback. There is a strange sort of thing going on right now in the world. There's this sort of warped sense of honor uh, as related to vengeance, as is related to a warped sense of masculinity. Oh, yeah. You know, all this. and, and, And how are we supposed to behave like when someone slaps us as a country even with the metaphorical glove? Are we okay just walking away from Mm -hmm. that? And honestly, that was one of my big frustrations with the movie. I felt like the idea of not dueling was not really ever considered. Oh, it wasn't. You could not duel. You could not duel. And and honestly, I kept waiting for that to be the... uh, and it was kind of hinted at at the end when he said, I'm, you know, I'm tired of living by your rules of what honor is supposed to mean. And I'm like, well, where was that, you know, I, an hour and a half ago, right. you know, at the beginning of this movie? I mean, we all know that uh, going in, or at least contemporary audiences should know that if we have any sort of intelligence or, you know, I, I, we need to know that as a mm-hmm. contemporary audience. And, and, and I wanted to, to feel that a little bit more, but... Whatever the case, if you look at it in the context of, like I said, our, our, our current cultural moment, maybe it does have a couple of things to say to us. I think that's interesting. I'm thinking of like, go on Facebook. You can see probably since at least last year's campaign till now, a history of dueling. Yeah. Right? I yeah. mean, people taking shots. Okay, that's its season. I can't let it go. Can, and I, yeah. And to me, that's one of the things that's actually on the fascinating side about Dubert is it would be easy to have a cursory look at the film and be like, well, Dubert is the put-upon hero and Keitel is the, or, 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 or Faroe is the uh, short-fuse, horrible jerk who's, who's making this vengeance plan his whole life. But the fact of the matter is, even in those early scenes, you can see Dubert, he has the option, he has the choice to de-escalate, but he doesn't. Mm-hmm. He keeps the tension there because there's a pride. The subtlety of those moments, I see us. Oh, yeah. I think that there's a criticism there. And so in that sense, no, it's not completist. I think it's valuable. But if there's a completist film or two or three in Ridley Scott's body work, then that's probably among them. But if you want to see something lushly photographed and you want to see, uh, you know, you want to see the beginnings of a, of certainly of a great filmmaker. Um, and if, and if you are interested in these tales of old of, of gentlemanly honor and a period piece that's meticulously researched and, uh, it has a whole lot going for it. Um, you're going to see something that's very, very impressive. I will say that not his best movie, but yeah, pretty good. On that note, I think that maybe that's it for this episode of The Freshman 15. Um, Ridley Scott directs the 1977 film The Duelists. A little bit of a gray area, whether or not we're going to call this a completist. I think we're saying, ah, it's still worth seeing. Give it a shot. Give it a shot. Don't expect his greatest film, but there's a whole lot in there that's maybe worth giving a look to if you're interested in something that's very beautiful, something that's very compelling, something that might just have something to say about where we are currently as a culture. Absolutely. 
If you want to respond to any of the things that we said in this episode, we'd, we'd love to hear your thoughts. If you have any films you'd like to recommend that we consider and discuss, you can email us at freshman15film at gmail.com. That's freshman15film at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and real quick, I'd love for you to do us a favor. And if you listen to us on iTunes, you can go there and and rate us, give us a review. That really helps with the searching for people to find us. And uh, one thing that I just want to mention, Daniel and I, the reason that we were able to see The Duelist, and not just The Duelist, but other films that we've watched uh, for our Freshman 15 podcast, is because we subscribe to a fantastic service, and that's called Filmstruck, which is a curator of many of the Criterion films and other classic films. Um, these are people that are just interested in the art of filmmaking and wanting to make sure that they curate a collection that's available for people like us, people like you, people that love the art form of film. So I just got to say, if you get the chance, check it out, subscribe, Filmstruck, it's worth your, your hard-earned dough. Like I said, that's it for this episode of The Freshman 15. Once again, I'm Jeremy Bear. And I'm Daniel Long. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. Let's get out and buy. Let's get out and buy. Let's get out and buy. Let's get out and buy.